Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 11, uh, verses 20 to 30. That's the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for, you, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for the, your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here and worship with you and now share the word of God with you. And welcome. Uh, let's start with a prayer. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity when the earth totters and all its inhabitants. It is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Amen. And so, Lord, we come to you now asking for understanding, asking for wisdom, but not understanding and wisdom of the world. But, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us your glory through your word as we submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, and this is uh, probably a more exciting verse, especially because these are now juxtaposed, meaning put together in uh, the passages that the passage that was read today. So there is clear judgment that is shown here in the next, the first few verses that we're reading. And if you grew up in today's society, maybe you won't or you can't help but to think. Why does there have to be judgment? Why can't it all be just nice and dandy? Especially if you know the classic argument. If God is so loving, if God is so loving, just like you've been saying, how can there be a hell? And Jesus showed us his loving compassion, his loving character, his healing and forgiveness. Is the next part about judgment really that necessary? And apparently to some groups, the answer is no, it's not necessary. But if you read these verses, what is Jesus saying and what is Jesus showing? And is it only Jesus that sees the necessity or warrant of judgment? And I don't think that's true. Um... I have a picture for you, and if you could put up the first slide, please. 
This has been modern, modern day uh, title, it's been dubbed the Garden of Earthly Delights. There's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot going on in this triptych, but this triptych is meant to be seen from left to right. And if you see it up there, there is a lot going on. This was by the, uh, the artist Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch. He's from the Netherlands. And it was probably painted uh, around 1500. And uh, this is, there's a lot going on, right? So you can kind of see there is a progression going on. So we're going to take each triptych uh, one at a time. So let's go to the next slide. So this is where you see what Hieronymus Bosch would draw is basically creation or creation order. And this is, what's, more, what's really interesting about this is a, the church, usually like paintings like this, the church would commission and the church would show. Uh, but this was not a church commission painting. Some dude said, can you draw? And then this was a layperson commissioned painting. And so this is why it was kind of, we don't even know the exact name of it, but we can see this is actually a very famous painting. You might be familiar with this triptych, but you see God, right there in the center, and then Adam, who's waking up from his slumber, and then he's just enamored by Eve, uh, who, whom, God is, whom God has taken by the wrist, meaning he's now showing Adam, Eve. And then you see all of creation is kind of ordered. The animals are doing what they're supposed to do. I don't know if you really want to take everything apart and say which one you agree with or which one is biblical or not, but whatever the case is, the whole theme here is that this is ordered, this is, um, this is where God is, this is what's intended, and let's go to the next slide. The next slide is the bigger one, the triptych, is the center panel. And in the center panel, you see uh, in every manner, uh, humans doing whatever they want with creation. So people are writing animals, they're writing each other, they're writing fruit. There's a lot of writing in, these pic in this picture, but... Um, they're doing whatever they want. You see a little bit of technology in the back. There's actually metal. And, um, and you see, uh, if you look at each little kind of section, each little section is kind of a scene. They're like, there's a couple like right on the bottom left, um, probably engaged in intimate acts inside a muscle shell. And some dude is carrying that. So that is just weird. Um, so, so you see here, the difference here is from the first triptych panel or the left, left panel, it was ordered, it was going as intended, and now when humans come into play, they do what they want with creation. That's the point. They, they're doing what they want to do. They do what they feel like is natural to them or right to them. And you see a, a whole sort, all sorts of manners of display of what they're doing with creation. Um, so there's a lot going on. And you could look at this on your own, but we won't spend too much time it on it. And here's the next slide. This is the last um, panel, the rightmost panel of the triptych. And here we see what was first ordered is now going and turning more into chaos. And here is a very classic uh, picture of judgment. And there's, there's, of course, a lot going on here. But... If you look at the progression, people were into themselves, people were into food, they were into sex, and they were into uh, sensuality or the showing of the body, which to me is very fascinating. If you, if you think about it, what's on Instagram? Uh, what's on all your social media? It's food, it's sex, and it's innocence or nakedness. So you'll, you'll even see like people posting up uh, random baby pics for the public to see. And then I remember my wife would show me like an uh, Instagram picture. It's like, isn't this baby so cute? And I would be like, who is this baby? I don't know this baby. I was like, but it's doing a cute thing. So I don't know this baby. I like our babies, you know. But, uh, you know, it's just this display of the nakedness or innocence. So the three things that you see on social media, which is interesting, because this was in 1500, is you see that display, sex, food, and that naked innocence. Um, and then you see a complete corruption of the happening. If you go all the way to the top, there's fire burning and people running down uh, from the very heavy judgment and the very heavy uh, display of um, just damnation and then going down to more specific things. And 
here you still see it like uh, on the bottom right you you see, you see you see like that bird demon eating the person and it's like pooping out people into even a deeper part of hell but right below that bird demon is like that woman who's still staring at a an image of herself but that mirror is a demon's butt and so these are incredible things where we saw beautiful musical instruments and tools that people used in whatever manner they wanted but now you see these tools and these images are used for torture and um, that was the triptych uh, that Hieronymus Bosch uh, drew thank you you can take that off and so when you think about this picture, this is not even just Christians, even secularists and social scientists, they admit to there, there is a progression. There is a truth to what is being shown. Amazingly, this was, shown, this was painted in the 1500s, but the truth and the understanding that they have, like I said, even psychologists, all social scientists, they will admit to this, that order to tends to decay. Order tends to decay. And decay isn't just any kind of decay. Order decays into chaos. And so you see that what was once ordered, what was once beautiful, once had a purpose, and people start doing whatever they want with it. They want to say, this is the will that we need to go through. And they can name it whatever they want, the will of God, the will of man, the will of whoever, whoever it is. And then you see this decay eventually into chaos. So now thinking about this, the answer to the question, is it necessary or does everything and sin really warrant judgment? That's kind of a funny question if you think about it. Because if we are living in whatever manner that we please, using whatever we think is good for us and saying, you know what, this is natural to me, I just want to do it this way, and that is what I want to define as good. Not the first panel, but the second panel. Is it so out of uh, our reasoning that the third panel is a natural progression to this trend, to this progression? And so even secularists, social scientists all agree that order tends to go down into chaos. The bigger question is, what do we do about it? If order tends to decay, then what do we do about it? That's the question. What do we do? It's not like we're not going to have judgment. Judgment is going to come. What do we do about it? That's the bigger question, in my opinion. And so, here Jesus is. After he sends away John's disciples and talks about the apostle of John, it goes, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Repentance isn't just an acknowledgement of sin. Repentance isn't just something that we do when Pastor Paul comes out here and says, let's repent. He's like, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance isn't only feeling sorry for your sin. Repentance is turning around what was once progressing this way. There is a turning around back to what is ordered. You're going back. Repentance is going back. But going back to what? Created order. Yes, but more importantly, it's going back to the creator. It's not just going back to created order, but it's going back to the creator. If you really took notice, what was missing in panel two and three is God. So in these places, Jesus did many of his mighty works, miracles. He did these things that only Jesus or God can do, but they did not repent. And these judgments that we're about to read and go through, they're pronounced as woes. Woes have a connotation of incredible sorrow, but with that sorrow comes sympathy and compassion. It's because of his compassionate nature Jesus proclaims the woes. And he goes, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon were outside of Israel, 
But Chorazin and Bethsaida were right near. They were cities and towns right near Capernaum where Jesus was headquartered that we saw all these last chapters from where he was doing all these miracles, all these teachings. They were right outside of Capernaum. In fact, many of the disciples, people like Peter, were from Bethsaida. That was their hometown. Jesus did a lot of miracles there. And they were shown the truth and the true nature of God and yet, it says here, Chorazin and Bethsaida rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus even though Jesus did incredible work in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And we go on to the next one. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? This is really interesting because guess where he is? He's in Capernaum. That was his headquarters, right? And he was in Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? So now he's talking about the outlying cities around where he is. But now he's talking directly to the city in which he is staying and standing. Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades, that third panel. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Where was Sodom? Sodom is notoriously recognized as the city that was full of evil and sin. Not only did they have this misunderstanding and completely perverted uh, sex and what God intended, but it, you even see in Ezekiel, they did not help the outsider. They did not look at someone who was different from them, didn't agree with them, didn't see their viewpoints and help them. They, in fact, killed them. And so you see, Sodom was notorious for their rampant sin and offense against the Lord, so much so that they were destroyed. And Jesus is saying, you think that you'll be exalted to heaven? To the people that he's, he's there. This person that we all remember as, you know, very gracious and kind and loving, right? He's there, and he's saying this to the people that are around him. Now, that's fascinating. We know Jesus is loving. We know he's understanding. We know he's compassionate. The last few chapters all showed his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his healing. And then he stands there and says this. Could it be something completely different? Maybe like someone came and said, you know, Jesus is too nice here. I need to balance him out. And just start writing, woe to you. What's a nice city? Chorazin. I don't like the way it sounds. Sounds like beer. Die. You know, that kind of thing. Is that what it was? It was not. It was not. Jesus was saying this, and he was completely consistent with his nature. Because there are three big theological propositions that we are seeing that is presupposed that Jesus is insisting on the day of judgment. We see this not only here, she says in chapter 12 and Acts 17, 2 Peter 2, 3, 1 John, Jude, all these things we will see where he will be the judge and he will pronounce judgment. And so what are these things that we're starting to see? The trend is, and what we're seeing, if you're really, really reading this, then it, it's actually worse. It's worse for the cities that received so much light. So it's worse that you have heard and seen Jesus and you still either reject him or people like in Capernaum stay indifferent to Jesus. So either you rejected Jesus or you stay indifferent to Jesus, but you have, Jesus has been revealed to you. It's worse for these cities. And what does this show? What are the three theological propositions that I'm talking about? Number one is that God, uh, we're being shown God is the perfect judge. God is the perfect judge. What does that mean? It needs to be at least three things. To be the perfect judge, it needs to be at least three things. Because in this life, we know that there are going to be bad things and wrong things done to us, right? And we know justice, justice which is uh, highly individualistic, right? Something does me wrong, that means I've, I have done wrong done to me, right? Uh, justice isn't completely um, enacted in this life because people die. 
You know, we, we even see a lot of tragedy in the world, so justice must be enacted. So we know that God, who is the perfect judge, will enact this justice. And there's three things that you have to have to be the perfect judge. Number one, you have to be righteous. If you're not righteous, you cannot be the perfect judge. Meaning, if you're corruptible, if you're bribable, you know, if you are just kind of like you don't even care, you know, or show favoritism, you know, I like this person, I want to give this person justice because I like his face. I'm not going to give this person justice because I don't like his face. That's not a righteous statement. That is not a, um, someone that you would call a righteous judge. So first of all, to be that perfect judge, he needs to be perfectly righteous. Number two, to be the perfect judge, needs to be omniscient. That means they need to know everything. This, to be the perfect judge, you have to know everything. You need to be omniscient. You need to be aware of all things. So the more a judge knows, knows, the better judgment that judge can give, even in today's society. But to be the perfect judge means you need to know everything. Everything meaning every single, every single tittle dot of this person's life so that they can give account to everything that they've done. And number three, so number one, righteous. Number two, omniscient. Number three, to be the perfect judge, you need to be omnipotent. Meaning, even if you give the right judgment, you, if you can't act that out, or if you can't enact it, then you're not uh, a good judge. But omnipotent, meaning he can carry out the judgment that is pronounced. That's number one. He knows. So you see here, Jesus is saying, I know what Tyre and Sidon would have done if I had done the same things that I did to you entire and Sidon. And so there is righteousness, there's omniscience, and there's omnipotence there in these sayings. And second one is you might be confused now. Wait, if he could do if he could have done entire and Sidon and uh, they would have been saying, why didn't he? That's not now I'm confused. But there is a theological proposition, something that we must understand as finite as people who don't see everything, people who are corruptible, people who don't know everything, and people who don't have the power to enact whatever we want. As people who are imperfect, we see that the perfect judge, the second proposition is that God does not owe revelation to anyone. God doesn't owe revelation to anyone. Because if God owed revelation, then there is injustice in withholding it. So there couldn't be a perfect judge if, there, if he owed everyone revelation and he withheld it. But God does not owe revelation to anyone. We're going to get to that part later too because we see he actually addresses it in the second portion of the passage. <clears throat> I don't know if you're following with me, but this is kind of heavy stuff. Agree? This is heavy stuff that we're being shown in the Bible. And... I hope that you are following because this is incredibly important. This is what Jesus is revealing about himself, his nature. And the third theological proposition I would like to point out is that punishment on the day of judgment takes account uh, opportunity. It takes into account opportunity. That means in heaven there are degrees of what we know as felicity or intense happiness. There are degrees of felicity in paradise and degrees of torment in hell. This is what's being shown. There are degrees of these things. It's not just here in Matthew, but it's also in Luke, and all these things are pointed out. It's very well understood by the Apostle Paul in chapters 1 and 2. And so there are degrees. So the opportunity that you've been given, you will be judged by. And so those are the three theological propositions. They're very intense, but it's very clearly shown here in the Word and what Jesus is saying. And if he just ended it there, that's what it is. He doesn't owe us anything. He could have ended it there, but he doesn't. goes on to verse 25. In verse 25 to verse 30, we can separate it into three parts. And in three parts, Jesus is going to explain the three propositions that I have put out too and address that. The first part is prayer, the second part is explanation, and the third part is invitation. Prayer, explanation, invitation. 
So it goes, verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. So now he's addressing the Father. This is a prayer. This is incredible because Jesus, in every single one of his prayers, except for one, uh, in every single one of his prayers that's recorded in the Bible, he always addresses God as Father. And we're going to get to that. He always addresses God as Father, and we're not to miss this fact. In fact, when we were learning about how to pray, how does Jesus t- teach his disciples to address God? Our Father. Father, right? And Jesus addresses Father, Lord of heaven and earth, meaning the Creator. And at that time, he goes, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Who are the wise and understanding here? And who are the children? In this scenario, the wise and understanding are people who do not need a teacher. They're already wise and understanding in their own eyes. So you don't need a teacher. And children are by virtue your child. You cannot make decisions for yourself yet. So you need a father to teach you. Children can't make decisions for themselves, so they need a father to teach them. The contrast then is what? Those who claim to be self-sufficient and deem themselves to be wise versus those who are dependent and those who love to be taught. So in this understanding, we see that judgment isn't arbitrary. The key character of the reprobate and the received are laid out here. God doesn't owe anyone mercy, but if you think about it, and if you were to speak out listening to this, and if you're listening to this, you'd be like, how dare you, God? How dare you? I deserve mercy, or I deserve grace. If you really said that, think about what you are asking and what you are claiming and what you are angry about. How dare you? I deserve grace. I deserve mercy. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy or grace. That completely is not the definition of mercy or grace. Mercy or grace means undeserved. If you deserve anything, it would be justice. Justice is what you deserve. Justice is what is promised. Justice is what you will get. Justice is getting what you deserve. And that's what you'll get if you go, I deserve blank. It will be justice. And if sinners got what they deserve, what would it be? And Jesus here, in this teaching, he delights in the Father's will, calling it, this was the Father's gracious will. Move on to verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now in the second part, Jesus explains to his listeners who he is. The claim that Jesus is making is astounding. You know, all things means everything. Everything has been handed to Jesus. So who holds possession of all things? And if you hold possession of all things, who are you? What's the song that children sing? He's got the whole world in his hands. So if you have everything in your possession, Who are you? And this Christological claim is incredibly important because only a righteous judge can be a true judge. And therefore, we must infer that and must come to this conclusion. Only God then can be the true judge. And by Jesus claiming to be judge, what is his real claim? So even before Jesus ever claims to be the Messiah, even before, we haven't read that, even before Jesus claims to be the Messiah, who does he claim to be? And it, why is it so important that Jesus must put that in his teaching here? Being the Son of God preceded the Messiah, and the fact is the foundation that Jesus is God, that foundation will now enact and show and lay forth ground to his mission as the Messiah. 
The next verse says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a lot of people take these verses out of context and think this is like, oh, this is such a nice, nice calming verse. I really like these verses. But when now we put it in context, what is going on? Now we put it in context, this is actually even more incredible than when we take it out of context. So if the wise and understanding don't get the call, if the wise and understanding don't get the call, the self-sufficient people who think they already get it, they don't get it, then who gets it? Who is Jesus calling here? Who is Jesus calling? All who are laboring and are heavy laden. Those that are suffering, those that have an incredible time even understanding that, oh my goodness, this judgment will be heavy and they are heavy laden. Jesus offers you rest. You've been toiling and toiling and toiling, and now you're spent. You got nothing left. Jesus calls you and gives you rest. This is not just a promise of the end times. This is a promise for the present reality that you are in now. You know what yokes are for? Yokes are for pulling heavy loads. It's a metaphor that Jesus is using to contrast the teachers of his day. So the teachers of the day, this is what they would preach and teach. This is what they would tell the listeners. They would say that you must take up the yoke of the law. That's what they would teach. And that it's good. So take up the yoke of the law. They had 613 laws that were extrapolated from the Torah, right? The first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. And they would say, this yoke you have to carry because this is good. This is going to save you. You're going to live life better. And then we people put those yokes on, they would recognize something. This is hard. Every rule, no matter what kind of rules that you set, and even if you get up, don't even get up to 613, it's going to be hard. You know, people like to be reductionist now, and people say, you know, it's not about all these rules. You just have to be yourself. Listen to your heart. And I'm like, that's a rule. You just set a rule right there. So you can't just say there's no rule and say a rule. You can't be like, don't follow the rules of the world. Don't go, just be yourself. That's just a rule you just proposed. You're saying, follow your own nature. Second panel, right? And even that rule is suffocating and it's difficult because when you start to follow your own rule or your own nature, what you think is good and someone else doesn't follow it, then you start becoming upset, angry. It's oppressive to you or it's hurtful to you or you're just like, why don't this person appreciate my rule because I'm supposed to be happy and yet I'm not happy. So even that one rule people can't live happily with but even if it's 613, even if it's one, that yoke, that yoke is heavy. It's heavy. It's laborious. It's laborious or it's heavy laden. <clears throat> and Jesus would say this in the time of that day. People who would have understood the word yoke in this metaphor. And the people who took that seriously, yes. I actually see the truth in that. If you follow, like, there is no government structure, there is no organization that will be able to succeed without a set of rules. We understand that. We're, we're not idiots. We're smart, we're educated, you all go to college, you're going to college, whatever it is. We need some set of rules. But these rules are heavy, and they are not bringing us happiness. It's not bringing us prosperity. It's not bringing us the things that we thought we would be able to achieve. And it becomes laboring. It becomes heavy laden. So what Jesus is saying is something incredible. What, this, what Jesus is not saying is this, though. He does not offer freedom from all constraints. He's not saying, uh, you know, this yoke is heavy. The yoke that you put on is heavy, so let's just take it off, and then you're fine. That's not what he's saying. He does not offer freedom from all constraints because that in itself would pose a problem that we won't get into today. To, to, to say that you're free from you know, all constraints is, is actually uh, crushing. But 
What Jesus does is more incredible. Jesus offers his yoke. His yoke. So to understand this, Jesus' yoke is discipleship. It's learning from Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Listen to what he has to say. Take everything that he has to say seriously. This is in contrast to the teachings of the day, but it's also contrast to the teachings of today. Apparently in some circles, and they call themselves Christians, the only battles, battles that we apparently face is we don't have enough faith, or you don't have enough health, and God wants health for you, or you don't have enough money, so he wants this prosperity to you. That's the only battles you face. And <clears throat> fighting this fight, saying these are the battles that we're supposed to fight, and that fighting these battles will inevitably make you healthy, wealthy, and wise is crushing. It'll make you sick, poor, and wretched. Jesus promises a better way. And Jesus is saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. What does that mean? Jesus isn't just any king. Jesus is the humble king. He's the one that all of Scripture pointed to. He is the one that will go on to take all of our burdens and sins, all of our shortcomings and failings, what makes us anxious, what makes us burdened, what makes us feel bad about ourselves, and he takes it on. He would bear not just the burden, but the punishment for the burden. He took that all, and then he was nailed on that tree. And the promise is that if you believe in him and you subject yourself to his yoke, the yoke of the humble king, now you can go where he goes. Where is Jesus going? He's going straight to eternity. And where are you going? If you are yoked with Jesus, you are going to eternity with him. That's the promise that Jesus is laying out for the received. So who are the reprobate? Who are the received? And we have to understand the reprobate then are the unrepentant. They received all the gifts that Jesus would offer them, but they never wanted him. They rejected him or they were indifferent to him. They used him for their own means and their own agendas. In effect, who did they make God? Not Jesus. They would make themselves God. That is the unrepentant. That is the reprobate. And there is a natural progression to that disordering. So who are the received? The repentant. Those whom God has opened their eyes to truly see that the only way to turn away from the oncoming judgment is to not just only turn away, but to turn back to God. And being yoked to Jesus leads us back to the created order, but not just the created order, leads us back to the creator. So yes, it's surprising to think that so many think today, ah, yes, of course I want to go to heaven. You want to go to heaven? Do you know who's in heaven? Do you know who's reigning and ruling in heaven? Do you want him? Do you want Jesus, who do you think is going to be ruling there with his rules, with his authority, with his commandments for all eternity? That's why it's surprising to think, of course, we all want to go to heaven. Do you really want to go to heaven? Who's going to be king there? Who will you be subject to when you are in heaven? And if your heart is reprobate and unrepentant, you're not obedient, do not love God, don't be surprised when the woes are pronounced. It's showing you. He's showing you this is where you are headed and where you are going. But if you have a changed heart, if God has changed your heart, then turn from the wicked ways that separated you from God and turn to Christ. It's going to be a journey. It's going to be a journey, and it will be a joyful one. And at the end, you will say, there's no doubt, you will say, wow, that was worth it, and that was amazing. What has happened recently in our time is 
one of the big Christian evangelical leaders fell from grace and um, wrote a book uh, called Kiss Dating Goodbye. A bunch of our college students uh, at the time when it was written in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, they would uh, read this and be like, whoa, it's, dude, this is amazing. It's not about dating. It's about courtship, right? And so <clears throat> this person became uh, insanely famous, sold millions of books, and person recently fell from grace. Um, I'm going to say something to this. Watch out for formulas, okay? Watch out for formulas. So people are like, man, this journey you are saying is going to take on the yoke of Jesus and I'm going to walk with Jesus to eternity? That's awesome. Okay, can you give me like a one, two, three pointer that I can do and then I'm set? Can you give me some pointers? Can you give me like an, an acronym that I can memorize? And then if I memorize and I just follow this set of rules, I'm good? And I'm going to tell you this. Watch out for formulas. And formulas aren't necessarily bad. And they can, in math, they can help reduce certain complex equations so you can get a, like a reductionist point of view. But if you never expand it again, you will inevitably succumb to sin and fall. This is where, if you just think Jesus is pronouncing the woes here in chapter 11, you've not read. Even in chapter 7, Jesus goes, I never knew you. In reality, you never knew Jesus. And one by one, we're seeing now these young leaders that, were, that claim to have faith fall. And now we have this most recent one. The answer is, they never knew Jesus, because if they knew Jesus, they would still be yoked with Jesus. <clears throat> uh, this is what Carl Truman wrote about all the stuff that is happening. Uh, early in the movement's history, so there's a movement that I think it was dubbed uh, Young, Reformed, and Restless. I might have mixed the R's. I don't know what it was. But it's a, early in the movement's history, I spoke with a couple of the leaders. One told me that his organization was, quote, God's means of doing something great in this day and age. I want you to listen to that. This is how young people think. This is what we want. We want, something, we want to do something great because we're millennials and this is what our destiny is, right? So one told me that his organization was, quote, God's means of doing something great in this day and age. That was the movement. And this is what Carl Truman writes. As delusional as such a claim obviously was, it did seem to reflect the general ethos at the time. Another told me that I needed to understand the movement as, quote, leveraging celebrity culture to do something for the gospel. Leveraging celebrity culture to do something for the gospel. People will go to you and be like, you know what? You come to Manhattan, I'll build you a big church. It'll be big, we'll do it. We got the money, we'll push it. It'll be great. Great plans for you. And that's the understanding of this celebrity culture. E even when these leaders are leaving the faith, or they think they're leaving the faith, they were never of the faith. And 1 John chapter 2 said that they were never of us because they did not stay with us. And so even people, as they were falling from grace, they would post pictures on Instagram of like looking out into the lake or something as if this was a contemplative time or journey in their life. So this is something cool, all still keeping to that delusion. And then Carl Truman writes this, Boromir tried to do something similar with the ring of power, as I recall. And so if you understand, this is a reference to the Lord of the Rings. This is why I like Carl Truman, and, uh, but... If you, if you know the, the story of Lord of the Rings, he's like, I can take this ring and use it for good, right? And eventually he gets corrupted and he almost betrays and he dies. So watch out for formulas. Watch out for formulas. Watch out for people who go, I can tell you how to do Christianity. It's easy. Just follow these rules and you're set. You know? And it could, be, it could be a whole range of things. And read the Bible every day from 9 to 10, and then you're good. It could be a whole range of things. That's not true. 
It's much deeper. It's much profound. It's actually more incredible than you could have ever imagined. And this reductionist point of view is harming the full manifold witness God wants to do in his church. So that's the question some people had for me is, can you lose your salvation then? Can you lose your salvation? And my response has consistently been, and some people even here in this church have asked me, can you lose your salvation? So did this church leader who, have not, who now resigned, divorced his wife, and is taking back all the things that he said about Christianity, did this person fall or did he kiss Christianity goodbye? And I would say no, because you cannot unmerit what you did not merit in the first place. You cannot unmerit what you did not merit in the first place. And this is my response to people who ask me, can you lose your salvation? You cannot unmerit what you did not merit. That means when God holds you in his hand, when God draws you, like we read in John, when God draws you, you won't slip out because who's holding you? What kind of power does he have? And when God holds you in his hand, you won't slip out from his hands, nor can anyone snatch you away from his grasp. Who is holding you if you know Jesus Christ? So that's why there's basically four kinds of people. Between the reprobate and the receive, you can kind of um, separate into four. One is they are saved and they know it. Some of you here believe that you're in this category. You're saved and you know it. You're sure of your salvation. Number two is you're unsaved, and you know it. You're unsaved. I don't believe in Jesus, and I know I'm not saved, right? Number three is you're saved, and this is the vast majority, I believe. You're saved, but you're not sure. Like, am I really saved? Because after reading this, this is, this is tough stuff. When I read, when we went over uh, Matthew chapter 7, that was very tough. Like, said, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do these things? Didn't we go to Bible study? Didn't I pay tithe? Didn't I go to a church? Didn't I do everything? And he goes, get away from me. I, didn't, I never knew you. And it's like, whoa, like, how can you be sure? How can anybody be sure? So I think this is the vast majority. Number three is saved and not sure. However, number four is the scariest. They are unsaved, but they are sure of their salvation. They are unsaved, but sure of their salvation. There are four kinds of people. Saved and you know you're saved. Unsaved and you know you're unsaved. Saved but not sure. And number four, unsaved but you are sure that you are saved. How do we know where we are? And what do we do about number three? About the people who are saved and unsure. This is why Jesus' words are so important. What does Jesus say to the listeners? Now that he's given and pronounced his woes, now that he's showing the reality of life, if you continue to walk without Jesus, of rejecting him or being indifferent to him, not following him, not being his disciple, what is the inevitable course that you are headed to, whether you like it or not? What is that? And what does Jesus say to those that are listening? This is why these verses are of incredible mercy. You need to show that there is a bad way. There's a bad way. There's a bad way. Wake up. You can't go this way. It's going to be bad. Wake up. Go the other way. Because you care about the person. You don't want them to go this way. You care deeply that you're going to go down to chaos and destruction, and it's going to be horrible. So what does Jesus offer? Jesus offers his words. That's why we take the Bible so seriously. We love it because Jesus gave us his word, his promise. And he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me. So if you, if you think you're saved but you're not too sure, then where's the focus on right now? Your focus is on me. Do I have enough faith? Have I done enough good things in life? Have I hit this margin or this level that makes me go from unsaved to saved? Is that where, what it is? And it becomes about me. But what does Jesus do? He takes that focus off of you and he brings it to himself. And he says, come 
to me. Look at Jesus. You want to know if you're saved or not? Then who are you looking to? Who are you following? Who are you yoked with? That's how you know. And if that's not you right now, then here is Jesus' offer for those that are listening. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will finally find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus, look at him, and know that his yoke is absolutely marvelous. This is a journey, and this is why it's exciting. A lot of times I just want to end the sermon by saying, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning, because this is an exciting journey. And we get to not just have a reductionist point of view, walk out, it's like, oh, I got to make sure I got to do the three points, whatever it is, but this is a journey where God is maturing and growing, and you continue to learn. So just as Jesus is humble, you also stay humble. You're like, there's a lot to learn, isn't there? There is a lot to learn. There's a lot to change and continue to repent. Continue. So that's what Martin Luther says, our whole life is a life of repentance. That was the number one of his 95 thesis. So we're continuing to change, continuing to step more and more back to where? Back to the created order, back to creation, back to God. That's what the yoke does for us. That's why it's easy. That's why it's light, because who's carrying us now? We're not doing it in our own. We're not, oh, we're not trying to go back. When the whole waves and the current is pushing us down into damnation, but the yoke, who's doing the heavy lifting? The one who is stronger, who's omnipotent, who's almighty. You are yoked with him. Let's pray. So, Lord, we come to you now. Desperate heavy laden. Our hearts are not where we want it to be. We're afraid that we might be uh, indifferent, or even worse, we might be rejecting you in our lives. But Lord, we turn away from that evil heart, and we ask that instead of this reprobate heart, you would change it and do a miracle in us now that you would give us a repentant heart. And even those that have heard of you, maybe for many years in the church, but have never followed you, Lord God, we want to repent and say, just because we were in the church or part of the church didn't mean you knew us or we knew you, so we want to repent. And as we repent, we lay ourselves at the feet of your mercy, of your grace, asking that you would continue to lead us and guide us. Let's take this time to pray and be honest. Ask the Spirit to guide your heart. Where is your heart now? And ask God to do a mighty work through his word as you listen to the words of Christ. Do a mighty work in your heart so that your heart is transformed. No longer are you here just to think you're going to get wisdom or you're going to learn something, you're going to be nice now or something to that effect, but you are here to receive the greatest, greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ himself. So ask God to change your heart. And he is good. He listens to that prayer. Let's pray.